for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised us from the dead, raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, help my stammering tongue this morning. Lord, I pray that that as, as we look to your word, you would speak clearly through your word, that we would understand what is this precious gospel that we've been given in Christ. Lord, for the non-Christians gathered with this church this morning, help them to see Christ clearly for the first time ever. May your spirit give them faith this morning. And for the Christians who have gathered with us this morning, Lord, enlighten their eyes. Deepen their knowledge of who you are and what you've done for us. So that all of us together, Lord, may glorify Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're visiting for the first time, I do want to welcome you. I want to welcome you to a gathering of of people who believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And we as a church, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we talk about that quite a bit. It's not just a story for us. It's transformative. That is to say, we, we believe the resurrection to be more than a moral tale about an innocent man vindicated. We, we believe that the, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father changed the entire cosmos. God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places and made him ruler over all things. And what we're going to see in our text this morning in Ephesians is that same power, that resurrecting, enthroning power, is the power that is at work in the church. Well, the letter to the Ephesian church begins uh, in verses 1 through 14 with a long, very long, and stirring praise to God for his work in salvation. And then Paul, the apostle who has written this, moves on to say that the the people he's writing this letter to, they, they've also received this salvation from God. They've been included in God's great plan to restore all things, and they've been given the Holy Spirit as a seal. The Spirit is, is proof that they, this church, will one day receive eternal salvation. 
And because this church has been included in God's plan of redemption, Paul says he's thankful. That's what we see in our first couple verses this morning, verses 15 and 16. For this reason, what reason? Because you're Christians. Because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He's thanking the Lord. He's thanking the Lord that these people are in Christ with him. And then he prays for them. Look at what he prays for them. And and notice also, this is not a one-off prayer for this church. It is a ceaseless prayer. He's always praying these same things for these people. Look at verse 17. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. He wants them to know the Lord. You see that? But hold on a minute. Don't they know the Lord already? Then isn't that what he's thankful for? It says in verse 13, you go back and look there. They're already spirit indwelt Christians. They have the Holy Spirit. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, so they're believers, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So they're believers who have the Spirit. And then we saw in verse 15 that he's thankful that they are faithful Christians. He talks about their faith. He talks about their love for the saints. So this, this church knows the Lord. They're Christians. But Paul, who is, is in many ways a spiritual father to them, is not satisfied with where they are. He's asking here that the Holy Spirit would deepen their faith. He's asking that the spirit of wisdom would reveal more to them as they grow in their knowledge of God. And that's a good reminder to us. You might be born again. You're a Christian. You've been given the spirit. You have faith in Christ. You may even have a sincere love for other Christians. And that is a sign of Christian maturity even. But can you see that the apostle isn't satisfied with that? Let me tell you why he's not satisfied with that and why you shouldn't be either. Friend, if you're not growing in Christ, you're at risk of falling away from him. If you're not growing in Christ, you are at risk of falling away from him. At Del Cerro, we don't say once saved, always saved, because that's not a helpful summary of the New Testament. Rather, we say once saved, always persevering. Someone who is truly a Christian will, by the Spirit of God in them, will persevere in the faith. And in order to persevere in the faith, we need an ever-deepening faith. And because that is our need as Christians, that's what Paul prays for these Christians. There are three ways in particular that we're going to examine today that the Holy Spirit deepens our knowledge of the Lord. Hope inheritance identity, you'll see what I mean by that in a moment, and resurrection power. So we grow in knowledge of the hope that we have in Christ. We grow in the knowledge of who we are to Christ. That's what we'll call our inheritance identity. And we grow in the knowledge of the power that we have in Christ. Hope, inheritance identity, and resurrection power. So let's start with hope as we get into this prayer, this precious prayer of Paul. So verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, he's praying, 
that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Notice that we can only know this hope if the eyes of our hearts are enlightened. You see that logical connection there? This is the Spirit's work in us. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, opens the eyes of our hearts so that we can see. And what we see with these Spirit-empowered heart eyes is hope. That sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? Hope is, doesn't seem like something you could see. How is it that we would be able to see hope? But it's not so much, what he's getting at here is not this, this vague concept of hope. It's not a state of being for us. Hope here, the focus here, the object of our hope is the focus. The person in whom we hope is the focus. This might sound familiar. Uh, for the past six weeks, we've been reciting Titus 2 together over, the, uh, over that, that time. And some of, some of you will remember verse 13 of Titus 2. That we as Christians are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our God, of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So the appearing of Jesus Christ is our blessed hope. This prayer then in Ephesians, that the Christians in Ephesus would be able to have their heart eyes enlightened so they could see that hope. What Paul is praying is that they would be able to see Christ. He's praying that they would be able to see Christ's future return even now. He's praying that that future event would be so real to them even today that it would give them confidence in Christ now. Think about that just for a moment. Compare it to some stuff here on earth. Is there anything that if you knew for certain was going to happen in the future, it would affect your life today. I should say yes, right? Because if the future of the real estate market or some stock or cryptocurrency, if you knew those futures, you would, that would affect how you live today, it, wouldn't it? And if you're single, if you could see into the future and see whether you will continue to be single or whether you'll be married and who you'll be married to, that would affect how you spend your time today. That would affect your relationships today, wouldn't it? If you're a parent, and if you could see the effects of your parenting on your child's future, well, you'd be terrified. But, but that would affect how you parented today, wouldn't it? If, if you knew the day that you would die, how would that change you? Now, now that you understand what we're getting at here, if you take those tangible realities, those earthly things, and compare that to Christ, ponder Christ for a moment. If your faith is in Christ now, how might your faith be lived out differently if you could see his return in glory so vividly, if it was so real to you that you could you could hear the trumpet, you could feel the heat from the light around him. It would change everything, wouldn't it? It would change how you think about your neighbor's lostness. It would, 
change how much time you squander on meaningless things. It would change how you think about your health. It would change what you're afraid of. It would change what you're anxious about and how you spend your money and how you don't spend your money. It would change how you fight sin and how you live in anticipation of that eternity that's coming. Clear-eyed vision makes all the difference, doesn't it? That's why Paul prays for just that. He's praying for an increase in the magnification of their heart eyes so that they could see Christ more clearly, our only hope in life and death. They would see his coming. Secondly, Paul prays that 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 church, that the Ephesian church, would know their inheritance identity. This is the second part of verse 18. Praise what are... They would know what are the riches of of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, the wording of this is unexpected. In fact, for the first time, several times that I read it this, this past week, I was assuming that what this meant or what it said was something more along the lines of what are the riches of our glorious inheritance in him. You see the difference? After all, the beginning of the chapter's focus, if you read verses 1 through 14, you'll see a lot about our inheritance. And nearly all the time that the Bible talks about an inheritance, it's something that belongs to God's people. Something that God's people look forward to. But Paul's not praying that. He's not praying that the Ephesians would have greater knowledge of their inheritance. Look again at this clause having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul wants the Ephesians to see with their spirit-empowered heart eyes how they, this would include us, Del Cero, how we are God's inheritance. Brother Christian, sister Christian, You are God's inheritance because of the work of the eternal Son. Christ has purchased you. He has redeemed you, not only for your sake, but for his. You are his inheritance. You turn over a page in Ephesians, you will see more of who you are to Jesus. Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 26 In the midst of this instruction about Christian marriages, Paul says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see that? For her. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So it is for the church's benefit that Christ has saved the church. It is for your benefit that Christ has saved you. But he doesn't stop there. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, and he keeps going to verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Look at verse 27, though. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ died 
for the church's good. And that is absolutely true. To sanctify the church, to cleanse the church from all sin. But he did that for Christ's benefit. If you're a Christian this morning, you have been purchased, you have been sanctified, you have been made holy for Christ, your King. It is for your good, but you are for his glory. You are his inheritance. Look at the way Peter puts it, 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you're, if you're here this morning believing that Christ's work is for you only, friend, that might very well be why you feel a sense of hopelessness and purposelessness in this life. That might be why you have no desire to worship. Why you keep falling into the same sin again and again and again. Part of why you feel so apathetic about Jesus is your gospel is incomplete. It lacks power. If you're convinced that Christ's work is only for you, then your thankfulness to God will stop short of true knowledge of him. It will stop short of true love for him. You will not have a desire to live in joyful obedience to him. And the reason for that is in our sin nature, this is what our flesh does. If Jesus is God's gift to us, then we presume that Jesus is for us to do with whatever we want. Take him or leave him. Worship him or ignore him. Be thankful or be apathetic. It doesn't matter. He's ours. That Jesus is little more than one of those cheap beach towels you get at a Padres game. MasterCard's no obligation gift to you. Friends, that's not biblical Christianity. not it. But because our selfishness so often reduces Christianity to that, Paul is praying here for this church because that's their temptation. Paul is praying here that through the power of the Spirit, through the enlightening of their heart eyes, the church would know better. He's praying that the church would know that we are God's inheritance. Friend, to be a Christian means the Spirit is working in you and revealing to you that not only does Christ belong to you, but you belong to Christ. And because you belong to Him, you are not free to be whoever you want to be. You are compelled by the love of Christ to become who He is making you to be. This is different than the culture's message. It's different the ethos of our culture says, in order to be an authentic human being, you must be true to yourself. You create your identity and then you live it out. But the message of the gospel is the opposite of that. Christ has purchased you for his glory. 
You are his inheritance. You are not your own. You belong to him, body and soul, in life and death. And therein lies all the difference between worshiping a beach towel and worshiping a king. Christ is our king. We are his blood-bought people. And the more that we identify as those who belong to him, the more we will delight in obeying him. And that gets us to the third thing that Paul is praying for desperately, continuously for this church. He prays that we would know resurrection power. He prays that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened so that they would know, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Why is Paul praying that this church would know that God's power is toward them? Well, the church in Ephesus was an embattled church. On the one side of them, they had the unbelieving Jews who had rejected Jesus as Messiah, and so they despised those who believed in Jesus. And on the other side of them, there were pagans who were furious that their people, the pagans, were abandoning the worship of the Greek goddess Diana and converting to faith in Christ. And then there was always the ever-present Roman Empire, the most powerful entity in the world at that time. Rome, in those days, presented itself as the ruler over all the world. There's been inscriptions on walls in Ephesus that describe Rome as the power that never dies, the hope of humanity. You could not turn left or right in any city in the known world and not be reminded of Rome's power and Rome's might and greatness. And in the midst of the helplessness and powerlessness that this little church is feeling, Paul is praying for them that they would know that God's power is greater than that, that it is immeasurable. And God's power is greater than the Caesar could ever have imagined, and that power is toward the church, not against the church, not indifferent to the church. Not operating alongside the church, but toward the church, for the church. Look at verse 19 again. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, praying that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. What an encouragement this must have been to the Ephesians. In all likelihood, they were meeting in someone's basement for fear of persecution. And yet they were being reminded here through the prayers of Paul through the eyes of faith, that the power of God is protecting them. The power of God is what is keeping them from sin. The power of God is giving them boldness to proclaim the gospel. The power of God is giving them perseverance in the faith, even when they don't feel like they can continue in the faith. Some of these dear Christians had lost their property here on earth because they'd begun to follow Christ. Some have lost their earthly inheritance some of their spouses have left them because of their confession of Christ. Their kids have been taken from them. Their parents won't speak to them. They've been fired from their jobs. They've been forced to rely on the charity of other Christians. And yet Paul wants them to know that the power of God is toward them. 
And he wants them to know this not theoretically, but in their innermost being, in their heart of hearts, a place only the Holy Spirit has access to. He's asking that the Spirit would give them this confidence in God's power. So what exactly is this power? God forbid that I just speak in ambiguities here. Look at the way that Paul describes it. This power is according to the working of his great might. That is to say, Paul's saying, we've seen this power before. What is it? Where have we seen it? This is the power, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So what power is on the side of Christians? Resurrection power, enthroning power. And then Paul tells us, this is important, tells us what the intent of God's power working in Christ is. God raised Jesus from the dead and he seated him, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. In other words, God did not just raise Jesus from the dead as an end in itself. I think sometimes we assume that the gospel goes something along the lines of Jesus died for our sins and then God raised Jesus from the dead to prove that Jesus died for our sins. That, okay, that's, that's the beginning. That's just the beginning. Jesus did die for your sins, and his resurrection does prove the power of the cross, but God's great plan is so much bigger than that, much larger, more cosmic than that. God raised Jesus from the dead in order to seat him above all power. God seated Jesus in the Messiah seat, at the right hand of God. And in that seat, he has all rule, he has all authority, he has all power, he has all dominion there at God's right hand. What Paul is saying here is Jesus is above every name that is above, that is named now and forever, and God put him there. That's what the resurrection was for. That was God's plan all along. Now, compare that to the one that our uh, little imaginations come up with. We sometimes think that, God, that Jesus could have just as well died on the cross and then drifted in spirit to heaven and, have, and won the victory. But that's, that's just not it. If Jesus stayed dead, Jesus loses the battle. The Jesus of the Gospels is a conquering Savior. On the cross, in his body, Jesus subdued his enemies. He conquered the rulers and principalities that held damning accusations against you and me. And he did that in his body. Jesus nailed our debts to the cross and put Satan to open shame. And so when Jesus was raised, he was raised victoriously in his body. And he was glorified to the right hand of the Father from where now he rules. Jesus died on the cross, and then he physically rose from the dead. It had to be a physical resurrection. It had to be a physical resurrection because the flesh that Christ conquered is physical. 
The world that Christ overcame is physical. The new creation that Christ is bringing is physical. In order to show that Jesus is ruler overall, he had to physically be raised from the dead. Anything less would have been a failure. So you cannot say Jesus rose from the dead and then say, but his resurrection was spiritual or metaphorical. It's a denial of the resurrection power of God. It is a denial of the gospel. If you deny the bodily resurrection of Christ, friend, I love you, and I'm going to tell you, because I love you, you're not a Christian. Because you don't truly believe that Jesus is the Christ. To be a Christian means to believe that Jesus is the Christ. To believe that Jesus is the Christ means you know that he physically rose from the dead and now sits at God's right hand. Far and above every authority. Every authority, he rules over every kingdom, every country, every nation, every corporation, every spiritual authority, everything and everyone. Jesus Christ sits above every created being on this earth or in heaven that exists now or that ever will exist. That's Christianity. As Christians, what Paul's getting at here is that is our source of strength is not our own faith. Our strength certainly isn't in our pastors. It's not in the number of people in our churches or how many baptisms we get or how big our denomination is. Our strength is not in Christians who hold earthly political office. It's not in some moral majority, which, newsflash, there isn't one anymore. Our strength is in the God who raised Jesus from the dead and seated him far above every power. Our God is the one with the authority to make our king ruler over all. That's the power he has, and that's the power that is toward us. And there's more. God, the one with all that authority, took the king, who he seated at his right hand, and he made that king the head of our church. Look at what Paul says in verse 22. And he, God the God of all authority who seated Jesus, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Part of the reason I chose this passage is because it's echoing what we've been studying in Genesis. In Genesis 1, we learned that the earth was created as a home for humanity Humanity was created to have dominion, to subdue and to rule over all things in the earthly realm. Jesus is the ruler over all things. God raised uh, Jesus, seated him at his right hand because Jesus showed that dominion. Paul is teaching us here that, that Jesus once and for all fulfilled that dominion mandate. He subdued, he conquered 
the darkness through his death. And so God raised him up and exalted him. God gave, gave him the glory as ruler over all. To put it another way, as we saw last week, God brought Jesus into his Sabbath rest. God sat Jesus on the highest throne where he rules with God. All right? But there's a problem here, which is what verse 23 helps us with. In Genesis 1, when God made the man and woman, he didn't just give them dominion. Did he? If you remember, Genesis 1.28 said he blessed them to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth. Well, in what way is Jesus blessed with this fruitful multiplication? How could the new and better Adam possibly multiply image bearers and fill the earth if he doesn't have an Eve to do that with? Well, if you keep reading in Ephesians this week, and I would encourage you to do that uh, this afternoon or later on, you will get through Ephesians 2, 3, and 4, and you'll get to Ephesians chapter 5. And what you will see in Ephesians chapter 5 is that all along, when God created marriage and gave it to Adam and Eve as the original means of fruitful multiplication, that was only a type of what was to come. Marriage was always meant to point us forward to Christ and the church. God made marriage so we would understand Christ and the church. This is what is meant by the church is the fullness of the one who fills all in all. Through the church, Christ, who reigns in dominion over all things, fills all. Through the church, the glory of God fills the earth. Through the church, Jesus is multiplying image bearers for God's glory. Christ has been given to the church as our head. That means he's our representative. In marriage terms, he's our husband. We are his bride. We are the body that belongs to him. We are the means through whom fruitful multiplication happens so that Christ may fill all in all. So there are two applications that, that flow out of, the, out of this. The first is for those of you who do not understand what the point of the church is. For you, I'll say this, the church exists to be the body of Christ. The church exists to fill the earth with the glory of God. That's our purpose. And we do that no matter where we are, what continent we're on, what era we live in. We do that because for every true church, we know that Christ is our hope. We know that we are God's inheritance. We belong to him. We know that the power of God is toward us. These three essential tr truths of the gospel motivate us, and they empower us to live in such a way that God is glorified in our lives. So when someone says to you, or when you ask the question, why are church people so weird or different is the word we prefer. It's because our hope is in Christ's return, not in this life. It's because we know that we are God's inheritance and we belong to him and not ourselves. It's because our strength is in the Lord and not in earthly institutions. And because each of the, these ideas is so unnatural, we pray for one another as Paul prays for the Ephesians. 
that these truths would always be growing in us. And we also meet together regularly to sing these truths to one another and remind one another from Scripture that this is who we are, even when it doesn't seem that way. The glory of God is known on the earth through the holiness of the church. And the church is made holy because of the gospel. All right, so that's what the church is doing. That's why the church exists. The second application, and this is for you, the church. Del Cero, the resurrection of Christ is not an end point. The physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior, seated Christ on his throne, right? Resurrection, ascension. And that's the beginning, not an end point. That is the beginning of the new creation. And in this new creation life that we've been given, we've been given the responsibility of filling the earth with the glory of God. That's our responsibility. We've been given a new Adam who lives now at the right hand of the Father in dominion over all things. He has subdued our greatest enemies. And now all we have to do is fill the earth with his glory, empowered by his spirit. And here's how we do it. One, we look forward to and we proclaim Christ's return. He's our hope. May we know that more and more. May we pray for one another that we would have that hope, that we would have clear vision of Christ's return. Two, we fill the earth with the glory of God by living as those who belong to Christ. And we pray that that identity transforms us into Christ-likeness. We belong to him. We're becoming more like him. And the more we become like him, the more glorified he is. Third, we trust that the resurrection power that is toward us is the same power that raised us from the dead. And it is the same power that raises others. Our king sits on high. There's no rival to his authority. May we have that confidence and joy when we proclaim his kingship and we proclaim that resurrection power to our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers and our family members 